It's good to have people around you whom you love and who love you, isn't it? Companionship, whether platonic or not, is an important element in the human experience. One of Jesus' biggest miracles was having a group of close friends in his 30s. In the official authorized story of Jesus, we have reached year two of his ministry, and Jesus is going to secure his ministry team, a group he will call friends. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair the biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Egan. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus will start year two by recalling some friends. Over the course of year one, a few started following him from place to place. It appears that Peter, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, and an unnamed disciple have been called to come and see. And we can assume that this group saw the first two signs in the Gospel of John, the water into wine and the healing of the royal official's son. They likely saw the cleansing of the temple and the miracles that followed. It's likely this group were the ones that got groceries in Sychar while Jesus ministered to the woman at the well. Now we get indications that at least the brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, have returned to their jobs as fishermen now that Jesus has returned to Galilee where their business lives. But are we sure? This is a major problem with harmony studies like I'm trying to accomplish here. The three synoptic gospels jump from Jesus' temptations in the wilderness to his Galilean ministry, which includes a calling of Simon, Peter, and Andrew. Only John covers what I've been calling year one of Jesus' ministry, and this creates what I call the curious case of the calling of Peter. If we're following John, the gospel of John, then Peter and Andrew met Jesus in year one. Many scholars then assume that they are included in the disciples mentioned in John's gospel before the Galilean portion of his ministry. But if we are following Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the disciples Peter and Andrew are called by Jesus at the beginning of his Galilean ministry, which they put right after the wilderness trials, as I said. Okay, there's no problem there, right? Peter and Andrew followed Jesus after the wilderness either way. But the description of how it happens varies in the synoptic gospels. In Matthew 4, 18 to 22, and Mark 1, 14 to 20, Jesus walks along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and calls Peter and Andrew and James and John to be fishers of men. That's definitely a different circumstance than what John described. One solution is that this is a second calling of the two men or that they didn't really follow him when they met him, and now they do. Luke, however, tells the story completely different. In Luke 5, verses 1 to 11, Jesus performs a miracle that causes Peter's surrender to follow him. Now, maybe, just maybe, Matthew and Mark's events happen directly after Luke's events, 
and they all combine into one big second calling of Peter and Andrew. Another solution is that Peter needed called three times, which would actually be symmetrical with his three denials and his three restorations, but it's honestly just too speculative for me, and we don't even get these problems when we'll just study one book at a time. These authors aren't collaborating. They're each individually making a point by sharing the calling of Peter that they want to share and the details of it that they want to share and denying the reader the other details. In no one story does Peter get called three times. So harmonizing the events in Galilee around the calling of Peter is really tricky. Just another reason not to do a study like this, but alas, we are. Matthew and Mark require no activities in Galilee before Peter is called, other than some synagogue teaching, which we've already captured. But Luke does require more. Jesus meets a man with a demon and he cures a mom of sickness. Luke has these events as precursors to Peter's calling, where Matthew and Mark place them after their telling of Peter's recalling. Now, most harmonies side with Matthew and Mark. This actually gives credence to the theory that the order of Luke's gospel is based off of liturgical readings in the church and not the order of events as they happened. With all that said, I'm starting with Luke's description of the call of Peter, and then we'll go with Mark from there. Luke 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. The lake of Gennesaret is the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, the Sea of Galilee is really a lake. If you ever get over there to see it, it's beautiful, but it's small. It's a warm body of water. It's about seven miles wide, 13 miles long, and it's believed to be about 685 feet below sea level. At the time of Peter and Jesus, it would be a thriving fishing industry. Anybody who's anybody's fishing there, cities like Capernaum and Tiberias are on the eastern shore. Jesus knows Peter and Andrew from before, and possibly they're already disciples. If they've been on the road with him for some time, they likely return to work to pay some bills or some taxes. Jesus borrows the boat to get some distance from the crowds while he teaches. Verse 4, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. This is not how fishing works, like at all. Fish swim shallow at nighttime, so you could catch them easier. In the daytime, they swim really deep, and big catches are impossible. Yet, 
so many fish are caught here in the daytime, in the shallow, on the edge of the lake, that Peter and Andrew's business partners have to help them out. Now, maybe this is the first miracle they've seen, or more likely it isn't, but it'd be the first one in his context. Water into wine? Cool. Healing from a distance? Didn't really see that one pay off. A fishing miracle that works against all the laws of fishing and pays off all his debts? Astounding. And Peter's reaction is spiritual. Verse 8, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Here he calls Jesus Lord or Master and recognizes this as a holy moment of a holy God-man in his presence and immediately feels his lowly status as a sinner. He was unworthy of such kindness and grace. And the power that was demonstrated is actually kind of scary. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I believe that Matthew and Mark are telling the same event, but just the second half. Mark 1, 16-20 Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Same four guys, same invitation, make fishers of men. James and John are even mending their nets, maybe from that crazy large fish haul that was breaking everyone's nets. His invitation in year one was, come and see. There were no promises from Jesus. But at the beginning of this stretch of ministry, he is making a promise. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What does that mean? Here again, Jesus is using what's surrounding him. And they're surrounded by fish. They are fishers. The promise is in their vernacular. So making fishers of men might be a very plain meaning. If you have a picture in your mind of people seeing Jesus and dropping all they have to follow him, it's not entirely accurate. While James has entered the narrative for the first time here, and it might be accurate for him, for Peter, Andrew, and John, they have met Jesus before and may have even seen his early ministry. This is assuming that John was that unnamed disciple in John's telling of the story. They don't know much. They they don't understand everything. They aren't proving that they know the doctrine of the Trinity or subscribing to the virgin birth. They simply change the trajectory of their lives towards Jesus. Every entry point towards Jesus is unique. For Nathaniel and Philip, they brought some Hebrew scripture knowledge to the conversation. And Jesus, knowing that, recruited Nathaniel by identifying himself as the Son of Man which was deep dive Daniel stuff. For these fishermen, it's far less scriptural connections and more the overwhelming holiness of Jesus coming through 
loud and clear in their experience, in their context. Nathaniel might not have been moved by a catch of fish. I hope that makes sense. What's beautiful here is their trust in Jesus. That is the foundation of true discipleship, trusting and then following. And sometimes we need to be invited again and again and sometimes again. Now we assume these four fishermen, plus at least Nathaniel and Philip, follow Jesus into Capernaum, their likely port of harbor. Side note, in case it comes up, Nathaniel is sometimes called Bartholomew. I know, it's fun. Sticking with the Gospel of Mark for a bit, we get a glimpse of the Galilean ministry. Mark spends the first half of his book establishing that Jesus has authority over sickness, nature, and demons. Mark 1, verse 21 and 22. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So we're in Capernaum now. It's larger than Nazareth. Some estimate 1,000 to 2,000 residents in the city at the time. By Roman standards, that's small potatoes, but it's not insignificant. They've discovered it in archaeology, and they've uncovered a synagogue from this time period. So Jesus is starting year two off with teaching, and it's a good message, and everyone's amazed. Then, an unclean spirit and a man crashes the sermon. Verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. At once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. I bet. I bet that word spread. My word. What is an unclean spirit? When Luke tells this story, he's more descriptive, calling it the spirit of an unclean demon. When the scriptures speak of demons, what do you think of? It can be tough for us to wrap our heads around it if we haven't encountered the demonic ourselves and be thankful if you have not just letting luke's choice of words speak for themselves the man had a spirit a pneuma of an unclean akathartos demon which is diamond or daemon so unclean meant unholy diamond was the greek word used for lesser deities or heathen gods. This was believed to be a real encounter with an unholy spiritual being. The word appears 221 times in the New Testament in the context of demon possession. Now I have theories on what that means and what the origins of such beings are, but some of them are silly, so I'll spare you. We do not need to know how they exist or need to understand them metaphysically, we must simply believe in them because they are part of the historical documentation of Jesus. 
The Old Testament doesn't have an equivalent word, nor a demonstrable demon possession frequency problem like you see in the New Testament. It's possible that God was protecting ancient Israel from possession, though they weren't immune to worshiping demons and false gods before the exile, nor was King Saul immune from their oppression. They learned a great amount about the spirit world while in exile, both through the revelations of Daniel and the culture of Persia. The more they understood the reality of this world, the more their religious leaders formed primitive exorcism rituals. After the exile, in the silent years, the apocryphal book of Tobit was written that contains the first explicit description of a Jewish exorcism. Historian Josephus reports incidents of possession and exorcism in his Antiquities of the Jews. He describes people using herbs and water baptism by immersion. The Dead Sea Scrolls include several exorcism incantations and formulas, mostly against disease-causing demons. The Dead Sea Scroll 11Q5 has four songs for charming demons with music. David's music might have been a form of early demon repellent. By the time of the Roman Empire, demon possession is a problem. If this example is the norm, the activity may have been heightened during the time of the Messiah. This one talks to Jesus and calls him out. The unholy spiritual being controlling this man's vocal cords labels Jesus as the Holy One of God, the Messiah. Yet there's fear associated with this declaration. The demon's concern is that the Holy One of God is here to destroy them. He doesn't do this, though. Jesus quickly works to silent the spiritual being by shushing him and exercising him. Two major things to note here by this action. Uh, first, Jesus would rather the unholy spirit not talk. Maybe he doesn't want the holy title being out there. This seems to be indicated a bit later. But also maybe he doesn't want the name of holy God on unclean lips. Second major thing to note here is that Jesus doesn't use the tools or procedures of exorcism. He just demonstrates his authority and the unholy spirit departs. No chants, no water, no salt, no scripture, no herbs, no music, no calling upon the power of God, just the actual power of God in Jesus. This achieves Mark's narrative goal of establishing Jesus' ultimate authority. Well, show us more, Mark, verse 29 through 31. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. I love this. Jesus receives the hospitality of Peter, and we assume his wife, and then he meets his friend's request to help her mother. Jesus takes time for the little things that are important to his friends. And then I love that Simon's mother-in-law just immediately wants to give back. What a picture. And I don't know if Mark is describing an amazingly busy Sabbath day, or if this is just Jesus' typical weekend, but he's busy for others. Mark 32 through 34. 
That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. Jesus stands in the doorway of his home in Capernaum until all hours of the night performing miracles and healings, but he makes time for the hurting. He cares for the sick and the afflicted, and it's not in a virtue signaling way, but in a sacrificial, his time is their time way. Jesus makes house calls. He makes time when those in need come to him. Jesus heals the sick and he frees the demon-possessed. In this way, the kingdom of God is being proclaimed. The kingdom brings deliverance. The kingdom brings healing. The kingdom brings the joy and peace that are associated with such things. The kingdom brings an experience of God's presence. On this Sabbath day in Capernaum, God's presence would have felt very near. Does Jesus' power and authority make him easier to trust? Or only if you know he's good? And does his healing presence make him easier to trust? Is that one of the ways we know he's good? As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our mind needs renewed. We aren't going to do a lot of the things that Jesus did here, at least not often, but let's not miss the compassion of Jesus. Jesus recognized and takes care of the demonized and the possessed. Jesus knows the reality of the spiritual realm and with authority casts out demons and keeps them in check. How can we take that reality seriously, but cautiously as well? Also, Jesus meets the request of friends. How can we have a similar others first mentality as part of our biblical worldview? Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Jesus will come for the sake.